Uh, I'm going to be this morning, uh, as we think about the resurrection of Jesus, in mostly in Acts chapter 26, and um, there should be an outline in your bulletin, and you can follow along there. There are full printed messages at the exits. If you didn't get one and want one, feel free to get up and grab one now. And then um, in two weeks, we will go back to the life of Moses. Next week, I'm going to be on vacation, and we're going to have a special Youth Sunday, and uh, our young people will be helping with the service. Tom Bogus, our youth pastor, will bring a message. And then uh, in two weeks, Lord willing, we'll be back and uh, pick up again with the life of Moses and the whole story of the Passover, which is very appropriate to this time of year, of course. <clears throat> this morning... <clears throat> I want to read one verse out of Acts 25, verse 23, and then jump down to chapter 26. So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at the command of Festus, he was the governor, Paul was brought in. Jumping down to chapter 26, <clears throat> Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I'm accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today especially because you're an expert in all the customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they're willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee, according to the strictest sect of our religion, and now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise which to, to which our twelve tribes <clears throat> excuse me, hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I'm being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? So then... I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. <clears throat> and as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While so engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, 
Why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only of the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom also are to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So, King Agrippa, I didn't prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I kept declaring both to those in Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So, having obtained help from God, I stand to this day, testifying to both small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light, both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles." While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. May the Lord open our hearts to his word of truth this morning. Many years ago, there was a leading lung surgeon by the name of Dr. Paul Atkins. And one day he looked at his own chest x-ray and realized that he was looking at his own obituary. Dr. Atkins was dead four and a half months later at age 55 from lung cancer, the disease that he had attempted to treat in many, many patients. The ironic fact was that Dr. Atkins himself had smoked up to a pack and a half a day of cigarettes for 40 years. His mother had smoked and lived to an old age, and so Dr. Atkins figured it would be the same with him. And even after he realized that he had lung cancer, he continued to smoke uh, 
against the strong warnings of his colleagues. You know, if anyone knew the dangers of smoking, it would have been Dr. Atkins having treated so many, but he did not apply that knowledge to himself. Knowledge that is not applied is really useless knowledge. It doesn't do you any good. And the same is true spiritually. We can know the truth, but if we don't apply it to ourselves, then it does no good. You know, there are polls that consistently show that somewhere between one-third and one-half of Americans will say that they have been born again. They believe in Jesus. And yet, there's not much difference between how they live and how the rest of the world lives. Same polls will show that they watch the same TV programs and go to the same movies as the rest of the population does. The polls will show that they view pornography, engage in sexual immorality, and get divorced in their marriages about the same as the rest of other Americans do. I think the Apostle Paul, if he saw those statistics, would ask them, doesn't the resurrection of Jesus from the dead mean anything to you? In other words, Jesus is risen, so what? What difference does it make? What difference should it make in our lives? The chapter before us reports Paul's defense before this Roman governor named Festus, a man named King Agrippa II, and his sister Bernice, along with many dignitaries, military commanders, and others who were gathered there at the Roman capital of Caesarea. This man, Agrippa, was the son of another man named Agrippa I. In Acts chapter 12, he's referred to as Herod, and he's the man who put James, the apostle, to death with the sword, was going to execute Peter when the angel opened the prison doors and freed Peter from prison, that same uh, Agrippa I, uh, at one occasion, the people said, oh, it's the voice of a God and not of a man, and he didn't give the glory to God, and so it says God struck him, and he was eaten with worms and died. That was the father of this Agrippa that we encounter here in chapter 26. Um, He ruled over Galilee and some territories to the north of there. There was a popular and yet not totally proven rumor that he and his sister Bernice were engaging in an incestuous relationship. Bernice later became the lover of a man named Titus. He was a Roman general who became uh, the Roman emperor But as a general, in A.D. 70, he brought his armies into Jerusalem, slaughtered a million Jews, destroyed the temple and the city because of a rebellion that was there. Agrippa and Bernice had a sister named Drusilla, and we read about her in Acts chapter 24. She was married to the previous governor, a man named Felix, and uh, he had lured her away from her husband, to marry her, 
Uh, Drusilla, interestingly, later died when Mount Vesuvius erupted in A.D. 79 in Italy. This is the third time in the book of Acts that Luke repeats Paul's testimony about how he came to know Jesus Christ. Um, I believe that the story of Paul's conversion, along with the testimony of the other apostles, uh, provides some of the strongest evidence that we have for the fact that Jesus Christ arose bodily from the dead. Um, here, Paul's focus especially is on God's commission uh, to him to go to the Gentiles and proclaim uh, the resurrection of Jesus so that they might repent and turn to God. And his message to us can be boiled down very simply to say this. He is arguing that because Jesus was risen bodily from the dead, you should repent and turn to God. In other words, <clears throat> to say, yeah, yeah, I believe Jesus is my Savior, but to live no differently than you lived before is not good enough. That is uh, no more good than for a lung surgeon to say, I believe that smoking causes cancer while he puffs away on his pack a day. Uh, it's useless faith to say that without repentance. And you can't separate repentance from genuine saving faith. It's I would argue the mark of true or genuine conversion is that you have repented and turned to God. Paul's defense here makes two main points. First of all, he's going to argue that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact, a historical fact. And then secondly, he's going to apply it by saying that repenting of your sins and turning to God is the only reasonable response to that fact of history. So first of all, let's look at how he shows that Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead is an historical fact. Now Paul is speaking here to a skeptical audience, and whenever, if you're ever called on to speak to a, an audience that you know is not in the amen corner, they're skeptical, the way you approach it isn't by stating your thesis right up front. If Paul had started out saying, Jesus is risen, they would have just hooted him out of that auditorium. He begins by very generally saying that resurrection in general is possible because God is. And then <clears throat> he describes his own personal encounter with the risen Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road and the changes that took place in his life as a result. Then he relates the message that the risen Lord told him to proclaim to all people. And then finally, he comes down to the basis for his message, namely that according to the scriptures, Jesus died and was raised again from the dead. There are four proofs of the resurrection that we can discern here in Paul's defense. First of all, he makes the point, as I said, that resurrection in general is possible because of God. Uh, Paul begins by telling of his early life in Judaism, identifying himself with the hope of God's promise to the Jews. 
What did God promise the Jews? That Messiah, the Savior, would come. What good would that promise have been to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of the other Jews who lived before Paul had there been no resurrection from the dead? They would be dead and gone. All right, nice promise, but it wouldn't affect them. That promise is only good if there is such a thing as the resurrection. And so Paul interjects in verse 8, Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? He was especially addressing the Sadducees because the Sadducees, even in Jesus' time, denied the resurrection. And Jesus gets into a confrontation with them over that issue at one point. But what Paul is saying here is this. If you believe in the God of the Bible, the God who spoke the universe into existence by the word of his power, the God who breathed life into that first man and woman, Adam and Eve, then what's the problem with resurrection? God has the power of life and he can impart life. And so he has the power to raise the dead. And as Paul will go on to assert, that means he raised the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, bodily from the dead. Paul's second point is that Jesus' resurrection specifically then is proved by eyewitness testimony. In verses 12 through 16, Paul goes on to recount his own dramatic encounter with the risen Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road. Now, skeptics might read about Paul's experience and say, well, clearly the man was having a hallucination. And if only we had Paul's experience and no other, we might say, well, I guess we can't defend that point very well. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul makes the point that if Jesus is not risen from the dead, your faith is worthless, he there tells how Jesus appeared to Peter and to the other apostles. And then he says he even appeared to 500 people at once, many of whom were still alive when Paul wrote that letter. Uh, A man named Floyd Hamilton says, Now it is perfectly possible for one man to have an hallucination, and two men might have the same hallucination by a singular coincidence, but that 11 men of intelligence whose characters and writings indicate their sanity in other respects, or that 500 men in a body should have the same hallucination and at the same time stretches the law of probability to the breaking point. Concerning Jesus' resurrection, there's a man named J.N.D. Anderson who wrote, the most drastic way of dismissing the evidence would be to say that these stories were mere fabrications, that they were pure lies. But so far as we know, not a single critic today would take such an attitude. In fact, it would really be an impossible position. Think of the number of witnesses, over 500. Think of the character of the witnesses, men and women, who gave the world the highest ethical teaching that it's ever known, and who, even on the testimony of their enemies, lived it out in their lives. Think of the psychological absurdity of picturing a little band of defeated cowards cowering in an upper room one day, and a few days later transformed 
into a company that no persecution could silence, and then attempting to attribute the dramatic change to nothing more convincing than a miserable fabrication that they were trying to foist upon the world, that simply wouldn't make sense. Now maybe you're thinking, well, well, that's great for those who saw the risen Lord, but I've never seen him, so why would you expect me to believe? I would expect you to believe because there is credible evidence for believing. And we all believe many things that we check out much less thoroughly than the resurrection of Jesus. I would venture to say that you ate your breakfast without running a chemical analysis of the food and trying to figure out, could someone have poisoned this food as a terrorist act? No, you just trust it's, it's good, it's okay. Uh, you drive away from the mechanic after he does a brake job and slam on your brakes expecting your car to stop because you trust his workmanship. You take your check to the bank and hand it over to somebody you don't know who scribbles something on it, stamps it, and puts it away, and you trust that he's not going to abscond to Tahiti with your hard-earned paycheck. Uh, we trust people all the time, and the Bible says in 1 John 5, 9, if we trust the wisdom of, I mean, the testimony of men, why don't we trust the testimony of God, which is greater? That makes sense. And God has borne witness about his son and about his resurrection from the dead, and certainly... God will hold us accountable if we just walk away from that without believing the testimony of the apostles. A third proof that Paul gives, not only is resurrection in general possible, and the resurrection of Jesus is given evidence by apostolic testimony, but thirdly, he says the resurrection is proved by the changed lives of the witnesses. Paul tells how he was relentless in persecuting the church. He imprisoned many of them. When they were put to death, he gave his approval. He says in verse 11 that he punished them often, trying to force them to blaspheme. He says, I was furiously enraged at them. And yet, here is that man, a changed man. He's a prisoner for the cause of Christ. He has endured much persecution beatings, stonings, all kinds of things uh, because he has borne witness to Christ. And yet he's not bitter. He's no longer an angry man. And so you have to ask, well, how did this hate-driven terrorist turn into a man whom he says in 2 Corinthians 5 was compelled by the love of Christ? He was transformed. And the only explanation is he saw the risen Savior. Same is true with all the other apostles. As that quote I cited earlier mentioned, they were all cowering in the upper room, afraid of the Jewish authorities. And on the day of Pentecost, they stood and Peter boldly proclaimed the resurrection from the dead. Now, we all of those men then have gone to martyrs' deaths as they did because they knew it was a hoax. If they thought Jesus isn't really risen, they would have just kind of quietly gone back to their occupation and never proclaimed his resurrection. The fourth proof here of Jesus' resurrection, it's supported by fulfilled prophecy. 
And Paul affirms in verses 22 and 23 that he's saying nothing except that which the prophets and Moses had said would take place. Namely, that the Christ was to suffer, that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he should be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. We probably have here in our text a condensed version of what Paul said. I would guess at this point he might have gone into more detail, citing maybe the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22, where God provided the lamb so that Isaac did not have to die, and Paul probably explained Jesus is that lamb. He maybe went to Isaiah 53, again using the lamb figure of he was like a lamb led to the slaughter, and God laid on him the iniquity of us all, and so on. He probably went to Psalm 16 that Peter used on the day of Pentecost, where he said that uh, David's tomb is with us, but David wrote of one who would not see corruption, namely Jesus, who is raised. And probably he mentions Psalm 22 that <clears throat> describes in detail Jesus' crucifixion hundreds of years before that happened and hundreds of years before crucifixion was even known as a means of execution. So the Hebrew scriptures proclaim what happened with Messiah's death and resurrection. And so Paul's point is that the resurrection, bodily resurrection of Jesus was an historical fact. And such a miracle is possible because God is the author of life. God is able to raise the dead. Jesus' resurrection in particular is proved by eyewitness testimony of the apostles and others, by the changed lives of the witnesses, and by the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, the question is, though, all right, so what? How should that affect our lives? And Paul goes on to show that repenting of your sins and turning to God is the only reasonable response to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He shows that both by his own example and by his preaching. When Paul believed in Jesus, he did a 180, a U-turn with his life. And that's what the Bible describes as repentance. I've often described repentance in this way. If you're driving to Phoenix and you repent, which you should, you get off the next exit and turn around, you drive back to Flagstaff. You don't keep driving thinking, I really should go back to Flagstaff, and you're all the way down there in that 100-degree uh, desert, but rather you actually turn around. That's what repentance means. It involves a change of mind, but more than a change of mind, it involves a change of your whole person. You, you were going that way, and you say, no, that way's wrong. I'm going this way, and you turn around. And so it's not divorced from saving faith because if you really believe you should turn around and keep going, you don't really believe it. If you really believe it, you turn around. So repentance and saving faith are inextricably linked together. It's like you go to the doctor, you're ill. He says, I know what's wrong with you here. And he writes out a prescription you can't read. And you take it to the pharmacy and hand it to a guy you don't know. And you trust that he's going to give you the right stuff. There's faith. And you take it home. 
<clears throat> and you put it up on your shelf and you say, I really believe that stuff will make me well. Will you get well? No. You have to take the medicine. You have to repent, turn around and say, I'm not getting well on my own. I believe that what the doctor gave me will make me well. And you take the medicine. That's repentance. Paul here says four things about repentance. First of all, he says repentance involves a change of understanding from darkness to light. He says in verse 23 that the risen Christ was the first to proclaim light. And then in verse, going back to verse 18, God sent Paul, he says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. Um, in the Bible, it says that apart from Christ, all people are in spiritual darkness. Ephesians 4.18 says people are darkened in their understanding. Jesus said in John 3.19 that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul says the God of this world, by whom he means Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. You know, if a person is blind, you can take them out to the Grand Canyon to witness a beautiful sunrise or sunset. They don't see it. They can't see it. They're blind. On a beautiful day like we had yesterday, the sun is shining. They don't see it. Why? They're blind. They can't see. And the Bible says that people are blind spiritually. Now, they don't usually know it. If you'd ask Paul... For example, before his conversion, do you believe God is holy? I'm sure as a good Jew who knew the Old Testament, he would say, yes, of course. All the angels say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Paul believed that in his head, but he didn't really believe it until God shone with this blazing light around him on the Damascus Road. He fell to the ground and instantly Paul realized, oh, woe. I, like Isaiah, am undone because God is far, far more holy than I ever imagined. And at the same moment, he realized all of the good works he was piling up as a Pharisee were like a bunch of filthy rags in God's sight. Because that's what happens when you step into the light. You know, you might be working outside in the summer and it's hot and you're wiping your brow and, and you're dirty and you know you're a little dirty. But then you go in and you flip on the light in the bathroom mirror and you look and you go, oh, good night. I had no idea how dirty I really am. The light brings that out. And when you see the light of God's holiness, suddenly you realize, oh, my. All of my sins are far greater than I ever imagined. You know, I think Paul, before his conversion, again, if you'd said, hey, Paul, are you a sinner? He would have said, yes, of course, all men sin. He knows that. The Old Testament teaches that. But I think he was probably like that Pharisee in Jesus' story that he told about the two men who went up to the temple to pray. One was a publican, a a guy who was a rip-off artist, tax collector, and the other one was a Pharisee. 
And remember the Pharisee, how he prayed? Oh, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I'm not like this tax collector. You know, I tithe. I I, uh, give my money. I fast. I keep all the Jewish regulations. So he knew he was a sinner, but he was a good sinner. Not a bad sinner like that guy. And you know, a lot of unbelievers think that about themselves. Well, yeah, I know I've sinned. Nobody's perfect. I'm not a really bad sinner. And then the light of God's word shines. And suddenly you realize, oh my goodness, I am in deep trouble. Because I am far, far more sinful than I ever realized. Many years after his conversion, Paul wrote this. He said, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. He didn't say, of whom I used to be foremost. He said, present tense, of whom I am foremost. Because as C.S. Lewis pointed out in his book, Mere Christianity, he said, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. And so repentance isn't just a one-time thing you do when you first trust in Christ. It's an ongoing thing because as you get into God's holy word more and more, it shines more and more light into your soul and you go, oh wow, I got more stuff I need to turn from in order to live a life pleasing to God. Now, if sin and Satan blind people so they can't see the light of God's truth regarding uh, His holiness and regarding their own sin, then you have to ask the question, well then, how can they be saved? How can they be rescued and changed? And the biblical answer is, only God can do that. Right after Paul said, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they can't see, then two verses later he says this, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, he's referring back to Genesis 1, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And God brings about that great change through the gospel, through the preaching of the gospel. And that's why the risen Lord told Paul in verse 18 of our text, that through his preaching, God would open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified in me. Now, thankfully, when God opens your eyes to see your own sin and to see his holiness, he doesn't leave you there. He also shows you the glory of Christ who died for sinners and offers eternal life and forgiveness of sins as a free gift to every sinner who will receive it. And so then you see the light of the gospel, glory, uh, uh, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So the first thing is a change of understanding from darkness to light. Secondly, repentance involves a change of masters from Satan to God. Everyone, whether they know it or not, and most people don't, When they're born in this world, they are born a captive in Satan's domain of darkness. 
they are held captive there. Just as Paul was in chains in this chapter, they're held in chains in darkness. In fact, both Jesus and Paul describe our condition outside of Christ. We are slaves of sin. We are enslaved to sin. Now, how can anybody get free of those chains? Well, John chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus said, So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Or as Paul says in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, he says, God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So God alone can perform that. He can break those chains and make us, as Paul says in Romans 6, even slaves of righteousness. And what that means practically is this. If you have not experienced a change of masters in your life, you need to go back to square one and ask the question, have I really been born again? See, before we meet Christ, we're the captain of our own soul. We, we run our lives. We're doing pretty well at it, we think. But you meet Christ and you realize, oh no, He is Lord. I can no longer be Lord in my life. He is master. I am no longer master. I used to serve self. Now I have to serve Jesus. There's a change of master. That's part of repentance. Turning from the dominion of Satan to God. A third change. Change of understanding. Darkness to light. Change of masters from Satan to God. Thirdly, repentance involves a change of relationship. And that is from condemnation before God to forgiveness and acceptance as heirs. In verse 18, notice Paul continues, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So before we are born again, we're under God's just condemnation because of our sin. The instant that we repent and believe in Christ, God sets us apart. That's what sanctified means. Sanctified by faith in me. He grants us forgiveness of all our sins. And he bestows on us all of the riches that are in Christ. That's the inheritance that we get. And at that moment we enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Before sin hindered that relationship. It blocked it out. We couldn't have one. When that barrier is taken away now... We can know Him and enter boldly into God's presence through Christ's blood to receive grace to help in our time of need. And so, if you've now turned from your sin to Christ, trusted in Him, you now enjoy God's forgiveness of all your sins. You enjoy a relationship with Him. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So repentance involves this change of understanding, darkness to light. It involves a change of masters from Satan to God. It involves a change of relationship from condemnation to acceptance and forgiveness in Christ. And then finally, repentance involves a change of behavior from sin to deeds appropriate to repentance. In verse 20, Paul reports his own obedience to the heavenly vision 
He says he kept declaring to Jews and Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, notice, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. And so whether you've been a religious person like Paul was as a Pharisee, or not religious at all like the Gentiles, just pagans living for pleasure and whatever they could, repentance is turning to God and performing deeds appropriate to that uh, repentance, to turning to God. Now, it's important to understand the order. The deeds follow the repentance. In other words, you don't do good deeds to earn points with God and then you get in the club. You come to God as a sinner, trust in Christ, and then that change in your life results in a whole new life of consistent good deeds as a repentant sinner. Uh, G.H. Lang, one writer, put it this way, None more firmly than Paul rejected works before or after conversion as a ground of salvation. None more firmly demanded good works as a consequence of salvation. You see the difference? We, we don't work to gain salvation. We work because we're saved. And it results in, again, a turning of the whole person from sin to God, and the result is a life of obedience to God from the heart. Then Paul gets kind of personal. He turns to King Agrippa, and he addresses him directly. I wish I, that there was a camera that recorded all of this, that we could see the look on Agrippa's face. When Paul, who's preaching this nice sermon, turns right to Agrippa and says in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And then before he can answer, Paul answers, I know that you do. Yeah, Agrippa believed the prophets intellectually, just like many American people who say they're born again believe in Jesus. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I believe all that. Is your life any different? Well, no, not really. But I believe it. That's how Agrippa believed the prophets. You see, sure, sure, I believe it, as he lived in splendor as a king and doing his own thing and all of, all of that. It made no difference. But you see, Paul wasn't just preaching for intellectual agreement to the point do you believe the prophets. Paul was preaching for repentance. And so am I this morning. And so I ask you the question, do you believe in Jesus as the risen Lord and Savior? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I'm asking something else. I'm asking, has that given your life a U-turn? Did you turn from sin to God? Are you seeking, instead of pleasing self, to please the risen Lord Jesus Christ? Instead of living in darkness and just doing your own thing now, do you live in the light of God's holy word, seeking to please Him? You see, that's repentance, and that should be the result of true faith in Christ. So now Paul's got Agrippa kind of cornered. See, if he says, no, I don't believe in the prophets, well, all the Jews are not going to like him, and he's trying to be a good politician and please the Jews. 
On the other hand, if he says, uh, yeah, Paul, I really do believe in the prophets, Paul's next question is going to be, all right, why don't you then believe in Jesus Christ as the risen Lord and Savior and yield your life to him? And Agrippa doesn't want to go there because he likes his life as king where he can call the shots and he can do what he wants to do. And so he skates out of this uh, embarrassing situation with this mildly sarcastic, humorous dodge in verse 29, or excuse me, uh, verse 28. In a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian, or the English Standard Version, and I think the NIV, uh, translated as a question. In such a short time, will you persuade me to become a Christian? And I'm sure he got a few chuckles and laughs out of that. But here's the tragedy. To save face among all these important people, King Agrippa turns away from his one opportunity to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life as a free gift. And as far as we know, he never got that opportunity again. May I say to you, today is your opportunity to respond to Jesus Christ if you never have and receive forgiveness of all your sins and eternal life. And you may not have another chance. Don't be like King Agrippa and blow it off. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was an interesting sermon. And out the door you go. Receive Christ. Trust in Christ. That's the point. You know, I would say probably every one of you, if we took a poll, would say, I believe seatbelts save lives. Good for you. It's true. Do you buckle up? See, that proves that you believe it. And you can say, I believe that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Good. I hope you believe it. But if that belief has not led you to repent, to turn from sin to God, from darkness to light, from being alienated from God to being in fellowship with Him through the blood of Christ, that's worthless belief. Genuine belief involves turning from sin to God. And then you receive this inheritance, incredible inheritance of all the riches of Christ are yours for time and eternity. May I encourage you today, receive the gift of eternal life. Let's pray. Right where you sit, you don't have to meet with anyone, go through any rigmarole or ritual. You can just in your heart cry out, Oh God, I realize now my sins that are many have put me under your condemnation and you sent your sinless son to die in my place on the cross. And I believe in Jesus, Lord. I want to turn from my sin. I want to follow you as Lord and Savior. And he knows your heart. And right where you are, you can make that wonderful, life-changing transaction, eternal change, will come over you because instead of facing God's judgment someday, 
you will face his warm welcome as you step into heaven. Dear Father, I pray that you would open blind eyes, break down hard hearts and make them soft and receptive to your truth. And we will give you all the glory for how you work through the power of your good news. Thank you for our risen Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.